last week when we started the series, whenever we watch a movie or we read a book, we identify with the protagonist. The protagonist is the hero, the, the main character of the story. And if we don't identify with the protagonist, then we don't like the movie. We don't like the book. We don't like the story. When we watch a movie or read a story that we do like, we, 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 we change places with that person. We become the protagonist. We enter into their story. And as we do, the reason we find it interesting is that we learn about ourselves. We go on a journey with that protagonist. We, we learn more about who we are. We're able to overcome obstacles in, in, their, in our lives as, as they overcome obstacles in, in theirs. And so we enter into the story with the protagonist. And it's okay to admit this in church because I saw it. Who saw the movie Joker this year? Like me and you. Okay, cool. So right on. We can talk about that afterwards. The rest of you are just too good of Christians, I guess, to go to the Joker movie. That's fine. So if you remember, it was back in October, which seems like forever ago now, doesn't it? As Jackie was saying earlier, how time passes. But um, the Joker movie created quite a bit of controversy because the protagonist in that movie is a, a murderous clown, is, is a psychotic killer. That's who the Joker is. And the controversy there was, well, how do we watch this movie? How do we enter into the story when the protagonist is somebody we don't want to be? And so the challenge for the director was, how do we, how do we write this, this screenplay in, in, in a way that helps the, the audience identify with the protagonist? All that to say that that's, that's what we do in a story. Now, I've, uh, over the years, come to realize that there are two groups of people when it comes to Christmas. The first group, they want the, the smells and bells, and, and they, want, they love Christmas pageants, and they love songs like Mary Did You Know, and the schmaltzier the better. They just love those, those uh, trappings of Christmas. The second group is a group of people who maybe they have a hard time for emotional reasons, maybe family-related, grief, so on, and the holidays are hard for them. And included in that group, for me, are the people who, you know, they, maybe they've done church or they read the Christmas story and they have a hard time just taking it seriously. They, they're, they're not really able to see beyond the storybook elements of the, you know, storybook-like elements of the Christmas story and, and they have a hard time identifying at all with it. And so I want to invite you in this series, and we tried last week when we started and we're going to try again today, to take a look at the Christmas story in a way that, uh, that lives out one of the things we say around here is that thinking people can take the Bible seriously. If you're somebody who's skeptical and you have questions and you read about a virgin birth and, and, and an angel appears to Joseph in a dream and those things have been obstacles to you, I'm going to invite you as you identify with the protagonist, I'm going to invite you to look at those that obstacles to overcome. That there's a way that thinking people can take a look at the, this Christmas story and find profound meaning. And I, I trust that we'll, we'll see that today. So today we're talking about Joseph, the earthly father of Jesus. Not much is said about Joseph. He has no speaking lines in the New Testament. It's only Matthew and Luke that tell the Christmas story anyway. And Joseph's name is only mentioned in Matthew, Luke, and John. Mark, which was probably the first gospel written, does not mention Joseph by name. But it does mention in, in Mark chapter 6, verse 3, that jo- Joseph is a carpenter. They say about Jesus, isn't Jesus the carpenter's son? And so that tells us Joseph was a carpenter by trade. We'll talk more about what that means. Paul, who wrote half the New Testament before any of the Gospels were written, does not mention Mary or Joseph or the Christmas story. It's only Luke 
that tells the story of Joseph, Mary, and Jesus visiting the, the Jerusalem temple when Jesus was 12 years old. And that's the last time we see Joseph alive in the Gospels. Uh, Jesus begins his public ministry perhaps at the age of 30. And so we're left to believe that sometime between Jesus being 12 and 30, Joseph has passed away. He's not mentioned anymore when, when Mary is mentioned later in the Gospels. And so let's read about Joseph from Matthew chapter 1. The verses are going to be on the screen. This is Matthew 1, uh, 18. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. Verse 20 but, or and yet, another and yet, after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. That's a quotation from Isaiah in the Old Testament. When, Jesus, or sorry, when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. So last week, we looked at Mary's hometown, Nazareth. And this week, we're going to look at the setting of Joseph's story, which is Bethlehem. We're told that Joseph and his ancestors lived uh, where Jesus was born in the town of Bethlehem. Joseph came from humble roots, uh, the little town of Bethlehem. Here's a map of Israel with Nazareth in the north and Bethlehem in the south. Showed this last week. So Mary's from Nazareth. Joseph is originally from Bethlehem. They're about 90 miles apart. So the next map shows what that distance would be here in Arizona. If we were here in Phoenix, that, uh, you know, that's Bethlehem. Nazareth would be up to 17, about where you exit to, get, uh, to go to Prescott. And so Mary would have traveled that by foot later in her pregnancy as she traveled from Nazareth to Bethlehem. But that's about how far apart those little towns were. And I have some uh, footage of Bethlehem. It's obviously Bethlehem now, but there's a wall um, built by Israel to separate Israel and the Palestinian territories. Bethlehem is now in Palestinian territory. Bethlehem means house of bread, and it has a rich history in the Hebrew scripture, the Old Testament, is the city of David, the greatest king in Israel's history, David. And Micah chapter 5, for example, contains a prophecy about the future Messiah coming from Bethlehem. And when I was there, I saw shepherds tending their sheep. And uh, it's a town of about 500 people in, in Joseph's time, a lot larger now, populated by wheat and barley farmers and bakers. This is the church of the nativity. Uh, this marks the spot where it's believed Jesus was born, and, and we'll talk more about that during our Christmas Eve service when we visit the manger. And, and Joseph, though Bethlehem is known for shepherds, Joseph was not a shepherd. And you can go ahead and show that next picture, Susie. We'll talk about that in a second. Um, Mark 6, verse 3, again, tells us that Joseph was a, a carpenter. And the Greek word there, because these Gospels are written in Greek, is the word tekton. You get the word technology, the word tekton. Uh, and it's 
obviously commonly translated as carpenter, but that may not mean exactly what we think it means. Um, and we'll talk about that. But an architecton was somebody who was an overbuilder, somebody, somebody who was a, a, a more white-collar builder in charge of designing projects, and we would get our work architect from that. But Joseph is a builder of some kind. He's a blue-collar worker. He's a laborer. He probably would have been paid at the end of each workday, some daily wage. Um, he's a man of humble beginnings. If you grew up Catholic, Joseph is the patron saint of workers. Joseph is a, is a guy who works with his hands and a man of humble beginnings. So after Jesus is born, for two years they flee to Egypt to escape Herod the Great's uh, attack, or the slaughter of the innocents, where Herod uh, says that he's going to kill all little boys under the age of two, and they flee to Egypt. And then when Jesus is two, they go back to Mary's hometown of Nazareth. Last week we talked about how there's a city called Sepphoris, about three and a half miles north of Nazareth. It's not mentioned in the Bible, but it was uh, you know, just down to Riggs Road from here. And it would, that would have been a, a, day, or a daily walk for Joseph or Jesus. It's where the money was. Sepphoris was a wealthy city. Nazareth was not. And so if Joseph is a tecton, a builder, a craftsman, there aren't many trees in this area. He's probably not working with wood so much. He's probably more like a, a builder using stones and would build stone houses. And, and so now in modern scholarship, Bible scholars are asking, did Joseph and maybe even Jesus help build Sepphoris? This is a Roman theater. They, I doubt they built this, but this could have been built in their time, but I don't know that they would have done that, but they certainly would have seen it. And, and so did Joseph go where the work was as somebody who was a tecton, a builder? And, and is it possible that Joseph and, and maybe even Jesus helping him built part of Sepphoris? This is a, a Roman theater in Sepphoris. This would have been, again, three and a half miles north of where Jesus grew up. And so we find Jesus saying things, the grown-up Jesus saying things in the Gospels like, the stone the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. A building term. Did he learn that from his dad? Jesus said things like, don't build your house on sand, but build your house on the rock. And so when the wind and the rains come, it won't wash away the foundation of your house, and your, your house will be built on a firm foundation. This is, again, a theater. And Jesus said that religious people who, who appear to be righteous... But it's a show. They're acting. They're not really who they claim to be. He said those people are, in Greek, hypocrites. Do you recognize that word? The word hypocrite. Hypocrites means actor. It's somebody who's an actor in a theater. Did Jesus get that idea? Was his exposure to actors in the theater from a city maybe he helped his dad work in? And Sephiroth, we don't know. It's conjecture. But it was three and a half miles away. And that's where the money was and, and probably where the work was. But Joseph was a humble tecton. All right, back to Bethlehem. Matthew contrasts Joseph with another builder who lived near Bethlehem. His name was Herod. We know him as King Herod. In Hebrew, his name would be Herod. Herod. And he was known as Herod the Great because he was a builder. He wasn't a humble builder like Joseph. Herod built massive projects over his 40-year reign. He was a puppet of the Roman Empire. He was a client king. The people in, in Judea who he ruled, they knew he wasn't the real boss. They knew he was a puppet king of another country, the Roman Empire. And he ruled for 40 years. He lived in luxury. He was distrusted by the people. They knew that he was dishonest. He died in 4 BC and Rome divided his kingdom. And this is 
one of his palaces. Herod built a palace and he named it the Herodian after himself. And this is in Bethlehem. You can see this from anywhere in Bethlehem. This is a pool at the base of the Herodian. It's twice the size of an Olympic swimming pool. And so there was actually a mountain next to the Herodian. The Herodian's artificial. There was a mountain next to it that he tore down half of the natural mountain to build his own mountain, essentially. This is a Roman theater. You can see the top. This is the fortress inside of his artificial mountain. There are tunnels that run all throughout the mountain. There's a shot there of the, of the top. All this would have been covered. Just think, it's a palace inside of an artificial mountain with tunnels boring through it where he could escape or where he could go to his theater or to his pool or entertain his friends. This is one of his palaces. When you tear down a mountain to build an artificial mountain, like why would you do that? Because you can. Herod had the money and he lived in luxury and he flaunted that. It was important to him to be seen as a rich ruler. He was a narcissist. He was somebody who thought of himself and not his people. He was bloodthirsty. We talked about how he, he had the, the two-year-old boy, or boys two years and under slaughtered in Bethlehem. That would have been something complete with, completely within his character to do. Uh, he actually had members of his family killed to protect his own rule. He, he lived a life of drama. It was a TMZ kind of life with constant drama going on crimes and murder and attempted murder and corruption are all around Herod wherever he went. He had two sons along with their mother executed to protect his rule. Guess what Herod's wife's name was? Mary. He had a son-in-law named Joseph that he had killed. These were common names in the ancient world. Uh, He married another uh, Mary after that. And again, when Jesus was born, he commanded that all the boys in Bethlehem under two years of age be killed. He harmed children to protect his power because that's just the kind of person that he was. So he was called Herod the Great because of his extravagant building projects. But a question for us is, if God placed Jesus into this world as God in the flesh, as a baby to be raised and and taught and to grow up and to accomplish God's purpose in the world, why didn't God place Jesus into the hands of the great one? Why wasn't Jesus born into Herod's family? Why wasn't Herod Jesus' earthly father? Well, we're left to think that the reason for that is that God's definition of great was a lot different than Herod's definition of great. And the infant Jesus was not placed into the hands of Herod, the great builder. He was placed into the hands of a humble tecton, a man who barely made it by, a guy named Joseph. Perhaps God placed Jesus into Joseph's hands because of who he was and how he would raise Jesus and and the choices that Joseph made. And once again, if it's difficult for you, if you're a doubter, if you're a skeptic, and it's difficult for you to enter into the Christmas story, then then there's one thing that liberal scholars and conservative scholars can agree on. Joseph was not Jesus' father. But this man raised him as his own. And is it possible for you to identify with him in some way and put yourself in his shoes, doesn't matter if you're a guy or not, the kind of person Joseph was over against the kind of person Herod was. So we put up our Christmas decorations last week. My wife did most of the work. Our house looks cozy and ready for Christmas. And every morning, 
Uh, from Thanksgiving to Christmas, Silly Elf appears in a different place in our house. The elf on the shelf, and we call him Silly Elf because that's what our oldest boy, Graham, called him when he was little. Silly Elf, how did you get up there? And, and Silly Elf moves from place to place every single day. A couple days ago, apparently the boys woke up in the morning and Silly Elf was slumped over. And our little guy, Grady, who's three, wondered what had happened to Silly Elf. And we couldn't, you know, weren't quite sure. Maybe he's just tired. Maybe he stayed up late the night before. As soon as Grady left the room, Silly Elf sat up right again. All was, all was well. But the other day, or yesterday actually, um, Silly Elf was in Grady's stocking. We have our four stockings uh, up uh, and uh, our initials are on them. R for me, Hannah, or H for my wife Hannah, and, and Graham and Grady, two Gs. And Silly Elf was in our little guy Grady's stocking. And he, I picked him up and we went over there and, Silly Elf's in your stocking, Bubby, what do you think of that? He's like, Silly Elf, how did you get up there? And he saw the G on his stocking. He said, G, that's for me, Grady. I said, that's right, that's right, G is for Grady. And I said, what about the other G? That's for Graham. And then I pointed to the R on my stocking. And I said, who's who's, who's, uh, letter R stand for? And he looked at me, he's like very confused. He's like, Daddy? I don't know. Like, what do you want me to say? And it occurred to me, he didn't know our names. We never had that talk with him. Like, what are your parents' real names? And, And I looked at... Hannah's stock and there's an H and I said, do you know what the H stands for? And he went, Mommy? And I, so I got to tell him, you know, Daddy's real name is Ryan. And he just looked confused, like whatever, like that'll, we'll make sense of that later. And I said, can you say Ryan? And he said, Ryan. And I said, Mommy's real name is Hannah. Can you say Hannah? Hannah. And it was just this sweet little moment. And you, know, you have those moments every once in a while where you realize, like, he's getting to know us. Even though, obviously, we are in his life, you know, every day, and we're his parents, but there's this unfolding of knowledge, isn't there? For a child, and and vice versa, we're getting to know him. As you live daily life with somebody in your family, and and obviously, we're the, the biggest influences on his life. And his experience of life comes through us, and he's getting to know us as he grows up, and so perhaps God put Jesus in Joseph's hands because he wanted him to know Joseph and Mary, not somebody like Herod. And we read the Christmas story, Matthew chapter 1, verse 19. We read this earlier. But it says, because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law. So he was a righteous man, is the original Greek there. He was a righteous man, a good man. He was faithful to the law, and yet, and yet, did not want to expose Mary to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. So they're, they're betrothed to each other. At this time, a young woman, as we said last week, was betrothed to her husband, perhaps 12 or 13 years old. There was a great concern that young women were married as virgins. They figured the best way to do that is to marry them young. And so she would be betrothed at 12 or 13 years old. Joseph may have been anywhere from five to ten years older than her. We don't know for sure. There was a tradition that he was much older, but that kind of had a religious agenda behind it. And so what's normal would have been that Joseph was perhaps 18, 20, 22. We really don't know. But he's a young guy. And they were betrothed to each other. And betrothal was more than engagement. It was actually a legal arrangement. We are legally betrothed to be married to one another. 
and, and then the, in, the marriage would follow, but betrothal was, was um, such an important legal uniting that breaking that betrothal was considered divorce. The Old Testament says that a woman who conceives outside of wedlock could be stoned to death. Now, that law was not practiced by the time of Mary and Joseph. They had softened that law to make it a lawsuit. So Joseph had a couple of options, and he was expected to exercise one of these. As a fine, upstanding young guy who obeyed the law, no matter how Mary had conceived, it was viewed as her fault. This is the ancient Middle East. Often that happens today around the world. But Joseph had two options. One was he could sue Mary, and that would be a public display that she has broken their betrothal, and he is suing her and ending their relationship. And that would have publicly shown what had happened. It would have publicly disgraced her. The other option he had was that he could follow a law in Deuteronomy and he could issue her a certificate of divorce and and divorce her quietly. And she would just kind of go away. And the idea there was that she could marry the man who was the father of her child. And so this tells us something about Joseph. It's what the biblical writers want us to understand about him. Once again, if you have trouble with the Christmas stories, we're entering into the story as it's told. for, For what it means. And so Joseph decides, well, I I can't stay with her. That wasn't really an option in his time. I could make her a public spectacle. I could could shame her. The the word there is actually stigma. I could stigmatize her publicly, kind of like a scarlet letter. It means to brand her, to mark her as somebody who has had a child out of wedlock. I I could brand her publicly by suing her. Or I can just send her away quietly with a certificate of divorce and she can marry the other guy, and we'll, we'll, we'll move on. We'll part ways, and we'll move on. So the first and yet tells us who Joseph was. Joseph chose the way of mercy. Now, of course, Mary is not to blame for what has happened to her, like many women throughout the ages is not to blame for what's happened to her. But Joseph's response tells us that he chooses mercy. Joseph understands something, and that that and yet tells us uh, what it is. He understands that the value of religion, and this is a religious law here that he has to follow, either sue her or send her away quietly. The value of religion is to make people better and to make people's lives better. And he sees the bigger picture that religion and religious rules and religious laws and, and, and all of the prescriptions that religious people are supposed to follow, they all exist really for one thing. It's to make you a merciful, compassionate person who wants to make other people better, wants to make the world better, and, you, and makes your own self better as well. The and yet there tells us Joseph had two options to weigh. He could follow the letter of the law, or he could see a bigger picture and follow the spirit of the law and show mercy. Joseph is a thinking man, a thinking person. He's able to see beyond what a lot of people think of when they hear the word religion. If I say the word religion to you, 
do you automatically think of thinking compassionate people who want to act compassionately and mercifully and give people the benefit of the doubt and they're non-judgmental and they just want to make the world a better place? Is that what you think of when you hear the word religion? The same thing was true in his day. It hasn't changed. But Joseph, he knew there was something more than that. There's bad religion and there's good religion. There's a, there's a kind of spirituality that makes us better. And it's a bigger picture. And it makes other people's lives better. He was able to see two sides of the story. He was able to think beyond what he saw, the, the unhealthy, really crushing, oppressive examples of religion that we saw in his time and that we see today. And he, he was able to weigh two options. And the end yet tells us that he was a thinking, compassionate person. And he saw a bigger picture that religion and spirituality are about pointing to mercy and making us better. Nelson Mandela, who was in prison for 27 years for resisting apartheid, was released. He died just over six years ago at the age of 95. After he was released from prison, he became president four years later. He could have taken revenge on the people who had imprisoned him. Black Africans comprised 80% of South Africa. He could have led a genocide against the 20% of white South Africans who had oppressed him. Instead, he decided, he decided to forgive them and seek reconciliation. He's credited with saying, you will achieve more in this world through acts of mercy than you will through acts of retribution. Do you show mercy when you're tempted? When, when you're tempted to seek retribution, to get somebody back, do you, do you show mercy at home, at work, at school, even when you're hurt? Do you cut people some slack? Do you give people the benefit of the doubt? Do you ratchet down the conflict when you find yourself in conflict? Do you provide a safety net for people? Joseph was this kind of a person. He saw there's something bigger at work here in religion and in life. And I want to show mercy and make the lives of people around me better and make my life better. And then in Luke 6, the full-grown Jesus says this, be merciful just as your Father is merciful. Do not judge and you will not be judged. Do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over will be poured into your lap by God. When you're a giving person, a merciful person, a non-judgmental person, for with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And it's interesting to me. When Jesus says, be merciful just as your father is merciful. He's probably talking about God the Father. You know what? Maybe he's talking about another father too. Maybe he saw this kind of mercy in Joseph. That was Joseph's first and yet. He was able to, to, to think about two options and see the bigger picture of religion and spirituality. Here's the second and yet. I'm taking a little bit of liberty here, but this is verse 20. But, and yet... After he, can, he had considered uh, this, he's going to send her away quietly. An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived of her is from the Holy Spirit. His second and yet, but and yet. So he's already made a decision to do the merciful thing. Now in the ancient world, again, if you have trouble with the Christmas story, if it's hard for you to take it seriously enough to get meaning out of it, in the ancient world, dreams were viewed as a mode of communication between God and people. They're called dream oracles. It, it made sense to them. If you're asleep, you're, you're in a more vulnerable state. 
Perhaps you're more open. We have sayings like, well, I'm going to sleep on it tonight. We kind of understand this. And in this dream, an angel of, uh, from God speaks to him and, and tells Joseph, there's something greater going on here. I know what this looks like, and you've already made a good decision. But there's something greater going on here. And this child has potential that you can believe in. And even though you've already chosen to do the right thing, there's something righter. There's a greater good that can be accomplished here. Most people wouldn't do it, Joseph. We totally understand. But you're the kind of person who is open. You're an and yet kind of a person. And that's why we've placed this child into your hands. And so here is the greater purpose behind what is happening. And Joseph wakes up and he decides that he's going to take Mary to be his wife, which would have been crazy. She was stigmatized regardless. There was no way she could escape the stigma. And by choosing to take her as his wife, he took on that stigma onto himself. Of course, what are people in the ancient Middle East going to think if he takes Mary to be his wife? Well, they're going to think he's the father, which was a big deal to them, to father a child out of wedlock. Or they're going to think that he's raising another man's child, which was a big deal to them. And to us, a stepdad's great. We honor stepdads, stepmoms too. But in the ancient world, it didn't have the same meaning. And so he's going to take on this stigma because he's open to seeing something even greater He's, he's already an and yet kind of a person. And he's chosen mercy and he's chosen to do the right thing. But there's another and yet. Joseph is the kind of person who's open to God. If you have trouble with religion and God and spiritual things and supernatural things and miraculous things, Joseph is open to goodness. Joseph is open to being beyond just a really nice guy. Joseph is open to more. He's a, he's a thinking man who is open to something even greater than what most people would understand or be willing to see. Joseph is willing to challenge himself and his assumptions and say, perhaps there's an even greater good for my life. Maybe I should allow myself to be challenged more, to do something more with my life than what 99% of people would do. Do you know people like this? I do. People who will make great sacrifice and they'll devote their lives to something and they don't care what other people think. They'll just go for it. Joseph is that kind of a guy. He's a thinking person who is uh, not just a rational thinking person, but he's open to God. He's open to goodness. He's open to a greater life than what most people are willing to see. I remember our, our first membership class here was back in June. Had about 30 people become members in our, in our first membership class. And, and I remember we looked at our mission statement that... The well exists to create a community where thinking, compassionate people can find a spiritual home and cultivate a Jesus-inspired life. And I asked the class, when you read that mission statement, what does it mean to you? What do you think about it? And I remember a gentleman here who's definitely a thinking, compassionate guy. He spoke up and he said, you know what? He's like, when I read that mission statement, I see the word thinking and I see a Jesus-inspired life. I see both of those phrases existing in the same sentence. Because that's not the view of religion that a lot of people have in our culture, for good reason. That a thinking person could be somebody who's really devoted to following Jesus Christ. Normally you don't, and I would agree with them, maybe you disagree, but I agree with them. You don't normally see those two things in combination very often. 
really thoughtful religious people and yet kind of people who are also willing to be fully devoted to Jesus. And they're willing to do things that just don't quite make sense sometimes. They're willing to get, they're willing to, to give of themselves to help other people in a way that it goes beyond just being a nice person. They're willing to make a real difference in the world because they believe in something greater, even beyond what a rational thinking person would think of. Is God calling you to do something greater? The second and yet in Joseph's life. Hey, Joseph, you've already, you're already a good person. You made a good decision. But there's, there's even a greater purpose now that doesn't even make sense to a lot of people around you. But Joseph was an and yet kind of a person who was open to God. He was open to goodness. Now, are you a, are you a parent? Are you a step-parent, grandparent, aunt, uncle, mentor? Do you serve in well kids? Are you a teacher? Do you have a child in your family and, and you're, you're an example to them? If, if you don't know that you are, you are an example to them. When Jesus grows up, he is able to see a greater purpose to religion and spirituality. To the extent that he sees people who are just kind of acting and they look good on the outside and he says, Hupokrites. And I'm paraphrasing, but Jesus says things like, you know, you obey the letter of the law and, and you, just look, you just look like you're just a great religious person on the outside, but you're not merciful to people. You're not compassionate to people. And Jesus says, you should have done both. Follow what you know is the right thing to do and see the big picture, that it's about mercy and compassion. That's what religion is really about. Where did he get that? Where did he get that idea? You know, we, we focus on the divinity of Jesus so much that definitely we leave out his humanity to a great extent. We focus so much on Jesus being the son of God, we don't think about him being the stepson of a guy named Joe or the son of a woman named Mary. Where did Jesus get that? If we can take the Christmas story seriously at all, and I'm, I'm arguing that we can and should, maybe he got that from his parents. These are the kinds of people who, they live with the stigma. They know there are, there are good, fine, religious people who look down on them. And that has taught them something about life. That being a good person or being a spiritual person is about more than the outward appearance. There's more to the story. And it's about something greater, being compassionate, being merciful, and even beyond that, like really giving of yourself to make this world a better place. Where did he get that? I would, I would say he probably got it from, from them, his parents. He got it from people in his life who lived that out for him. Could be his grandparents, could be aunts and uncles, could be his teachers, his synagogue community. Where did he get that stuff? He got it from the people who poured into him and influenced him. So maybe, maybe you're an assistant and well kids, maybe you're not a parent, maybe you have kids in your family, maybe you're a teacher, you're an example. Can you see yourself in Joseph's story? What could they learn from you? Why did God place Jesus into Joseph's hands instead of Herod's hands? Because Joseph added value to the people in his care. He treated the people God placed into his hands as people of value. Can you find yourself in the Christmas story? Is this somebody to, that you can aspire to be like? You know, in church circles, this is often called stewardship. The modern word for it is manager. This, I mean, maybe it's not a child. Maybe you're a manager of a team at work. Do you care for the people? 
who have been placed into your hands? Do you add value to them? Do you value them? And do you model values for them to the people who have been placed in your hands? So Joseph's story challenges me. As I enter into his story, do I treat the people in my life with, as valuable people? Do I add value to their lives? Of course, human beings are intrinsically value, but do I, valuable, but do I recognize that value in everybody I meet, in my family, at work? And every, do I recognize their value? What does it look like to add value? If you're married, what would it look like to add value to your spouse? What does it look like to... to to treat those people as valuable that God has placed into your hands. I like to play guitar. Definitely not as good as Matt, but I like to try. I love music. And um, I just love, love music history. And I want to show you a photo. This is a photo that was taken in Steinway's Music Store in Hamburg, Germany, in the late 1950s. And the guy playing the guitar is Toots Thielmans. He was a well-known guitarist at the time. The light-colored guitar to his left is a 1958 Rickenbacker 325 Capri. It's believed by many that this particular guitar to his left is now worth an enormous amount of money. That guitar hanging on the wall to his left is far more, exponentially more valuable than any other guitar in that photo. It's believed that in, that in 1958, that guitar up there to his left hung on the shelf for two years before it was purchased in 1960. So that guitar hung on the shelf for two years. Two years on the shelf is a long time. You ever feel like you're on the shelf? Right? Two years is a long time to be on the shelf. How many people played that guitar and then put it back down, not really valuing it enough to buy it. But in 1960, somebody did buy it. And for those of you who know rock history, you might kind of know where the story is going. In 1960, in Hamburg, Germany, who was playing in Hamburg, Germany in 1960? It was an unknown cover band called the Beatles. And one of the singers and guitarists in the Beatles was this unknown guy named John Lennon. And it's believed that John Lennon bought that guitar and he had it refinished to black and rewired and it's believed that four years later, here's a picture of that guitar on the Ed Sullivan Show in 1963. Now, an unknown John Lennon guitar recently went for 400 grand. If you remember this iconic image of Jimi Hendrix burning one of his guitars, I think that was a Monterey Festival, I'm not totally sure. Hendrix's burned guitar went for 400 grand. In 2015, John Lennon's acoustic guitar sold for $2.5 million. The value of that guitar was greatly increased by the hands that played it. Would it be fair to say that the value of something depends on whose hands it's in? That guitar hung on the shelf for two years, and then it was placed into the hands of somebody who greatly increased its value. As I read Joseph's story, I'm challenged to ask, do I increase the value of the people placed in my hands like that? Do I treat them as people of value? Do, do I view religion as a set of rules to be legalistically followed and, 
that makes me better than other people and I can look down on them in judgment, even though Jesus clearly says not to in the verse we read earlier, but it's just a common thing. And I can assume that, that I'm following the rules, so I'm good, and there are other people who aren't following those rules, and I can look down on them, and I can, I can treat them poorly as, inval- as not valuable. Or do I realize that there's something bigger to religion and spirituality, like Joseph did? That the point of all of it is to become a compassionate, merciful person and add values to people's lives and help, help them be better people and make the world better. As Jesus said, love God and love your neighbor as yourself. All the law on the prophets hang on those two commandments. Joseph modeled that. And then like Joseph, can I see the and yet in life? Am I a thinking person? Actually says, as Joseph was thinking about all these things, he was considering, pondering, as Joseph was being mindful of all these things, and yet, am I an and yet kind of a person? Am I able to see both sides when, when appropriate? Am I able to think deeply about my choices and about the world and, and the kind of leaders I support, the kind of person I want to be, the kind of world I want this to be and what I can do about that? Do I, do I think about that and see the bigger picture? If you do want to be that kind of a person, then you can see yourself in the Christmas story. You can see yourself in Joseph's story, and the Christmas story becomes your story. I invite you to pray with me.